All right, everybody. Hello again. Back for our weekly conversation with Sir Richard. And I'm sure he'll be popping on in quite soon. So I'm going to deploy my expert skills at killing time before that happens. And there he is, Sir Richard. Hello, Michael. How are you? I'm okay. Um, I'm just wiping the tears from my eyes because I watched Joe Biden's impassioned (laughs) plea for various gun control measures. Are you similarly um, emotionally moved by that, assuming that you watched it? Yeah, I listened. I listened to some of it. Uh, yeah, Biden is. Uh, he's, he's a. Uh, he's a certainly a feelings kind of politician. Uh, this is sort of what he does. It's not. It's not going to matter. None of this stuff ever matters. Like I don't know, you can turn on cable news right now, and they're sitting there pretending like it's going to you know ch- change our politics or something. It's not. I, I don't think there's anything you know surprising here. Yeah, I mean, this is why, you know, Biden, probably more than most politicians, like, I mean, compare Biden to Trump in how often they invoke their personal history. Biden always brings up, you know, his lifetime of tragedy. And he has actually undergone significant tragedy when he was first elected to the Senate. His um, wife and young child were killed in a car crash. Uh But but it seems like that's somehow more formative to his political identity, to any kind of philosophical understanding, um, at least in terms of the rhetorical tack that he deploys to press forward with a certain agenda, and I mean, I, I'm just, I'm just not sure how how stirred people are by it at this point. Yeah, he's he is not. You know, if you look at some politicians, are maybe more relatively cerebral. That's not Biden. Biden has always been sort of right in the middle where Democratic Party is, uh, you know, going along with public opinion, going along with this, you know, emotional feel-good stuff. Uh, so, like, this is, you know, this is his element, uh, you know, national tragedy, trying to bring people together, uh, trying to, you know, do something, pass some law or something. It's not going to work. I mean, the world is, the world has changed. Um, yeah, but, and in, in, in fairness to Biden, it's true that Obama basically was vaulted onto the political scene because he wrote a memoir at age like 33 yeah, that was an about, about his about, about his personal history. Well, Bill, um, Bill, Ayers, Bill Ayers wrote that. Oh, okay. did he really? Has, was yeah, that proven? There was, there was, it was never proven, but uh, there was some text <laughs> analysis. I don't know if it's, well, uh, I've read. I, rem- I remember stuff. that. I remember, I remember actually Alex Jones ranting about that. Yeah, Alex Jones. Sometimes, sometimes he hits the target. Uh, so I was. Uh, if you've read other Obama stuff, it doesn't sound anything like it. Like I read his, uh, I listened to his memoirs. I listened to Obama read them. Uh, it was very boring. Uh, he had another book. Um, you can look at his other writings, his other interviews. It doesn't sound anything like him. It sounds like yeah, like Bill Ayers writing what he thinks like a black man, you know, a black liberal activist, uh, you know, should be like. And then there was a book called Barack and Michelle, which was by. Uh, a journalist named uh, Richard Wolf, I think his name was, and he's like a yeah, serious yeah. journalist. And he, uh, in somewhere in the book, he says something like, "You know, Obama couldn't like get started on his memoirs. He got like, you know, he couldn't find the motivation to write. He dropped it off at Bill Ayers' house, uh, and then like, you know, it comes back, and some people swear like it sounds like Bill Ayers or something like that. Like, you know, giving very clear indication that this, you know, who knows whether this guy's sources are good or not. But this is a mainstream journalist, whatever. Yeah, are, Richard Wolf. Richard, Richard Wolf was a, was an MSNBC anchor for a long time. He's a British journalist, and he you know was regarded as serious. So he made that claim in his own book. 
it's at least worth entertaining. You know, I don't know. I think Obama strikes me as reasonably intelligent enough that he could write his own book if he wanted to, but maybe he just didn't feel like writing that memoir at the time. I don't know. I mean, I, I read it. I read it in like '06. Um, you know, when when it, Obama was first being floated as a potential presidential candidate, and okay. you know, yes. I, 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 I I remember feel, finding it interesting at the time, but you know, I was like eighteen. So uh, yeah, it wasn't. No, this book wasn't by Richard Wolf. It was by a guy named Christopher Anderson. He says he's a author of eighteen New York Times bestseller. Uh, former contributing editor of Time, longtime editor of People, so yeah, like a real journalist. Uh, okay, and what about the birth certificate? Is that also a fraud? Let's just <laughs> let's just go over all the Obama era conspiracies. Uh, you know, Trump is <laughs> yeah, Trump is, was on top of that. But, uh, <laughs> probably, I th- the uh, the investigators that Trump dispatched to Hawaii, I think, are still at work. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they're. I'm sure they're. I'm sure they're real. I'm, sh- I'm sure he said he said investigators. <laughs> he 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 said he famously said he did when he toyed with running for president in 2012. You know, he visited New Hampshire and stuff, and in, in the uh, as the primaries were heating up for the Republicans in 2011, and he said that he had investigators in Hawaii looking into it. Wasn't that an amazing? Wasn't that an amazing part of our history? The fact that like this became like an issue. For like Republicans, I mean that's absolutely crazy. It's sort of, it sort of it sort of catapulted Trump to like being a big figure in the Republican Party. No, it really did. I mean Trump Trump would cite WorldNet Daily Joseph Farah as one of his key sources of information on that topic, and he kind of it was the beginnings of him having one toe in this kind of alt media right wing emerging sphere of uh, influence. And also, like within the more respectable precincts of the Republican Party, and then Joe Farah, who's the, was the is still the proprietor of WorldNet Daily, his daughter was a legislative was a young legislative aide at the time for I think uh, I forget which Republican senator I think it might have actually been Rand Paul. Um, don't hold me to that. But anyway, Alyssa Farah ended up working at the Pentagon under Trump. Uh, and now has been this, now she's in a, one of these many former administration officials who is at loggerheads with Trump because I guess he, she criticized something about January 6th or whatever. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that, that was a thing that really happened. Um, and I think Richard is gone. Let's see if I can pull him up. There we go. Richard, you are invited back to speak. There you are. Yeah. So uh, wait. That, so that uh, that Alice Farah woman is um, is Joseph Farah's daughter. I did not know that. That I is true. I doubt, she, I doubt she worked for Rand Paul. I thought she worked. She's like a really hawkish foreign policy person, right? Did she work? Kind of. I mean, it, uh, she worked for um, Pence, right? It. Yeah, Pence. She worked for Pence. No, earlier uh, early on, she worked. She went to work for the communications director for the Freedom Caucus for the U.S. House of Representatives under Jim, jo- Jim Jordan and Mark Meadows. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's not that's not. You said Rand Paul. Yeah, I do. I do uh, Freedom Caucus. I guess I associated my mind with with Rand Paul, but she would she worked for the Freedom Caucus, which was at least like one of these punitive Tea Party outgrowth groups that congealed into a actual caucus yeah. in the Congress. Yeah. Well, that's interesting because Farah is sort of like just this like extreme, like crazy out there guy. And like Farah is like, oh, Mike Pence, you know, aide 
conventional foreign policy hawk. I think she, I think I talked, I think she was, um, she interviewed me when, uh, she was on like, I was on like, uh, the show Rising. It used to be Crystal and Sagar. And then they have a new people. They used to switch out a bunch of people. So I think, I think yeah. I talked to her. I was on the show with her. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. She's a big, well, I think she became hawk. a CNN contributor or something once she left, once the administration ended and whatever. So, um, yeah, so one thought that occurred to me, and I just tweeted this right before the call and began, but I'm curious what you think of it. When I was listening to Biden's recommendations, it seems like the most plausible policy change that might actually come into effect as a result of this, if any do, is this idea of raising the minimum age for purchasing a, quote, assault rifle or assault weapon from 18 to 21. And I know people will quibble with the semantics around, like, what is an assault rifle? And I grant that there's some legitimacy to that because, you know, I'm not one of these gun enthusiasts where I can like give you chapter and verse and every little component of a rifle and, you know, uh, tell you the history of how it dates back to like the civil war or something. And uh, I actually find sometimes that whole sort of pretense that in order to have an opinion about anything related to gun policy, you have to have, you have to be like extraordinarily conversant in all the mechanics of like how a firearm recoils and all this. But anyway, um, it seems like that you, this is a policy adjustment that if the Republicans are going to support anything, you could imagine them potentially were supporting this Um, because I mean, they they already in Republican States, the, uh, the minimum age for purchasing a handgun is not 18. It's 21. But then it got me to thinking, and this is just like a brief transient thought, admittedly, but it kind of teleported me back to when I was 18 and when, you know, you'd be on, I'd be on campus, you know, wanting to socialize just as a normal college student and you couldn't go to a bar um, and you couldn't just do a normal social gathering that involved alcohol on a Friday night because, you know, we were all subject to the prohibition on 18-year-olds being served alcohol um, that came about in the 80s because of this uh, highway funding bill that basically made it so that in order to get grants, states would have to change their uh, legal drinking age from 18 to 21 and all all eventually did comply. Um, And me, in my mind, can recall myself... (laughs) thinking that was very irrational. I still think it was irrational. Um, and, you know, so now, like, the the one policy adjustment that might be viable for this gun proposal, uh, this suite of gun proposals from Biden, is raising the minimum age for a, quote, assault rifle for 18 to 21. And so my, my, my thought is, why don't we just raise, then, the legal age of adulthood to 21? Because it seems like we have this really incoherent nonsensical patchworks of laws and even social expectations that govern what somebody can do at 18 versus 21 that really make no sense. Um, so, you know, and, and, and people more and more kind of treat an 18-year-old as not really fully competent to make <laughs> consequential decisions, you know, yeah. even though they're allowed to join the military, obviously, at 18 on their own volition. Although like, they can join at 17 if they have parental consent. Um, and so, like, 
rather than con- constantly chipping away at what a, a, an adult is legally allowed to do at 18, you know, given whatever the political exigencies are of the day, it seems like it would make a lot more sense to just raise the overall age of adulthood to 21. <laughs> yeah, what can you still do at 18? You know, sometimes you'll see these headlines like <clears throat> all these states allow child marriage. And it's like, you know, they allow 17-year-olds and, like, 16-year-olds, you know, and 15-year-olds sometimes to get married. And it's like, okay, well, you know, I mean, if you start raising, you know, if you start talking about guns and alcohol, I mean, why marriage at 18? Why is 18 the age? Why not 21? I mean, it's a very it's yeah. a very big decision. Uh, you know, what sort of annoys me about this is, like, there's no, actu- I mean, there's no actual reason this needs to be a federal issue. So New York just is, you know, they pledged to raise the... Uh, uh, the age to, to buy an AR-15 to 21, um, you know, states can do that. You know, the, the constitutional justification for this is the Commerce Clause. I don't know if you're a, if you know anything about the law, Michael, but you know, yeah, yeah. Only I know the Commerce Clause. Please. Okay, so you know, you know, the Commerce Clause is basically would be the justification for doing this. If they raise the age of 21, it would be like we are because uh, we can regulate interstate commerce. People buying guns, they can commit crimes. Therefore, that affects the economy. Therefore, you know, we can raise the this was the, this is the, this is everything. Commerce clause is like they catch everything. So like you wonder why the federal government has no limits. It's the commerce clause. So the 21 uh, year old uh, driving, it's, it's all the same thing. It's all the commerce clause. And so it's all it's so stupid. I mean, Republicans, you know, right, won't go won't go along with it. Um, but there's, there's just no, I mean, there's no reason, there's no reason for it. It's like, there's no reason to see, actually, there's no reason any of this needs to be a federal issue. Like, okay, like at least Republicans are like door, door control, right? Ted Cruz says one door, <laughs> you know, one way in, one way out, locked down with a, you know, an armed military man, like standing in that doorway. Like if a state or like a locality wants to do that, like, okay. But like, there's, you know, this is like one of those things where like, you can, you can pick like the exact trade-off you want between uh, security and convenience and freedom, right? It's not a thing that like affects the whole country, like foreign policy. It's not a thing that affects the national economy. It's a thing that literally like the president, you know, I think shouldn't have anything to anything to do with. I mean, there's really no reason for him to be talking about it or visiting this area. Like, you know, we have to, we're supposed to have like a system here. And like, it's just because like, oh, it gets on the news. Therefore, it's a national issue. And, you know, it should, there's no real logical reason for it. All right. Well, I mean, f- forget whether the proper jurisdiction for considering this issue is the federal government versus the state well, government not, or local legal, government. It's, it's not just well, a legal uh, question. It's like a, it's like a thing about you know what our what our politics is. About. I know, but I, but I'm sort of more talking about the underlying principles. So let's just say we're dealing with the state of New York. I mean, just to take an example. Uh-huh. Um, so let's say it is within the purview of the state of New York to make adjustments around legal age of acquiring a handgun or an assault rifle versus a drinking age or whatever. Even if you're just talking about that one jurisdiction, it still seems like the underlying principle about the uh, incoherence of kind of constantly modulating the legal age of adulthood based on this or that exigency can also just kind of collapses into incoherence at a certain point. Yeah. Can you buy marijuana? Are there states? I'm sure in California. It's like California, like marijuana 18 and uh, cigarettes 21. No, you know, most, I don't know for sure off the top of my head, but my recollection is that most of the states that have legalized marijuana lately, yeah, the, 21. In the past like 10 or so, 10 or so years, yeah, I mean, they've done it at 21 just to kind of make parity between uh-huh. marijuana and alcohol, in, in part because that was how they sort of sold, whether it was a referendum or a bill that was passed when, you know, when the issue was being debated, because they were saying, look, all we, all we want to do is equalize this between marijuana and alcohol, we're not making any kind of special provision for 
marijuana. Um, so um, most of the time, most states, I think, have it at, at 21. Uh, um, so, they, so they nationally raised the age of smoking to, to 21 in 2019. Uh, you know, yeah, you say the jurisdiction. It's, it's, so, it's so stupid. It's so stupid. This is a federal issue. But it's the pet peeve. Yeah, we could talk about We could talk about just the logic of it. Fine. Um, it's... Uh, yeah, I, I forget. I forget how. I mean, so Trump signed a bill in two thousand. I mean, I I vaguely remember this. Trump signed a bill in two thousand nineteen that somehow federally raised the minimum age for buying cigarettes to twenty one. Yeah, yeah, like that's uh, that's what my quick googling says. Yeah, it's called the the food drug and amending the food drug and. Oh yeah, I know. I do remember this. Uh-huh. What was the mechanism? Was it the commerce clause? I guess. Oh, it it's always the commerce. Whenever yeah. the commerce clause catches everything, it's 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 uh. Uh, yeah, the Commerce Clause, it's a, you know, you can go back to the law. And it's, it's really funny. There was a case where, uh, uh, like, someone was growing marijuana on their property. And, and this was, like, during the, I think this was, like, uh, I think this was, like, the 30s. Somebody was growing marijuana on their property. And they're like, this is not interstate commerce. It's literally, I'm not leaving my property. And it, like, went to the Supreme Court. And they're like, oh, no, it affects the economy because maybe you, you smoke marijuana, you don't buy something else. And therefore, it affects the economy. I mean, the Commerce Clause is really ridiculous. Um, and, but anyways, the, so, yeah, I guess there's no mind-altering drug and not even what about gum and patches? That's probably eighteen. I, I would assume. I know people who who chew gu- nicotine gum now who like never never smoke. It's just like a uh, it's just like a uh, stimulant, you know, that apparently doesn't have any negative effects. So some people will just uh, chew gum. I think you could do. Um, I, I would assume you could do that when you're eighteen. Uh, but yeah. well, I, I, I guess the, the point here is that in a variety of different domains, they are gradually whittling away at, of at eighteen yeah. as the legal age of adulthood. Right, yeah. because what, you can't, what, what, now, you, now you can't buy cigarettes. Yeah. For a while, you can't drink alcohol legally, at least you know, in terms of being served at a bar or a restaurant or something. Um, in terms of renting a car, I still think it's a comp- This is a more uh, an industry wide policy. It's not law, as far as I know. Maybe I'm wrong, but that's yeah. that's generally twenty five um, to rent a car, unless you have a special exemption or something. Um, and yeah, you know, we still have the legal age of adulthood at eighteen. Yet, like, you're not afforded the full provisions of bona fide adulthood when you turn eighteen. So it just doesn't make any sense, just on a conceptual basis. Well, it could make. I mean, you could make sense. It could be like, you know, it could. You could say, well, you know, you can get you can get married. So getting married is like a good thing, or at least a neutral thing. And like smoking is a bad thing, and like. I guess having an AR-15 is maybe a bad thing or something like that. I don't know. You're you're right, uh, but you know, there's going to be I, I, what you're saying is there should be one there should be one age for all this stuff because there has to be an age for stuff, right? Uh, should it be the same age or should it be different? Ages? I don't know. Maybe it should be different ages, but I, I you know whatever it is, I think 21 is 21 is too long. I mean, people were married having kids. <laughs> they were like, you know, 15 for most of history. I mean, this is just infantilizing. But, but, but more and more, I mean, talk about infantilizing, and I don't want to get uh, totally into this can of worms, but even when you're talking about, like, sexual relations and power disparities and all this, I mean, there's a norm that is more and more prevalent now where it'll just be assumed to be abusive or um, otherwise kind of impermissible for, like, an 18-year-old to be in a sexual relationship with somebody who's... You know, maybe ten years older or something, just as a matter of like uh, prompting cultural scorn and condemnation. You know, they can't criminalize it at least yet, but it seems like that's kind of another whittling away at this kind of notion of what adulthood was uh, in the past that was centered around the age of eighteen. It seems like for for most practical purposes, except maybe like taxation, 
18 is not even really considered a legal age of adulthood. And, you know, of course, and there are, so there are trade-offs to this. I mean, if you did want to raise the legal age of adulthood, that would mean, you know, that would have implications, for example, charging criminal offenses, um, you know, prison sentences, uh, and so on. So, you know, I'm not saying it's straightforward. I'm just giving sort of a fleeting, transient thought that occurred to me when I saw this Biden speech about how it doesn't, you know, this notion of 18 being the legal age of adulthood, it seems to be collapsing into incoherence given how much it's being chipped away at. Yeah. Yeah. For criminal law, I mean, it's interesting because you could try minors as an adult. So it's like, so there's not really a cutoff there. Um, you could try someone as an adult and then, you know, they, if they're 19, you can go, you can, you know, go more lenient on them if you, uh, if you want. Um, yeah, it's, um, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's, well, tax, you said taxation, actually. Taxation, trust me, you have to pay taxes if you earn money under 18. You go work at, like, McDonald's or something, they'll take it for Social Security. And I'm sure well, they'll yeah, take sure. income tax if you, if you uh, owe, owe enough. But, yeah, I mean, we have to just sort of make a decision. This older man, younger woman thing, I mean, this is like a, you know, a very weird feminist thing. It's not like something, like, a lot of people are into, like, criticizing. You know, it's just one of those things that, like, you know, feminists don't like because, you know, they don't like the fact that men like younger women. And so it's like a big thing that like a lot of them are older, not, not, not so attractive and they don't like it. Um, or they just don't like the fact that men like attractive women in the first place, regardless of how, you know, personally, uh, they look. Um, and so this is a problem. It's never a problem when it's the other way around. Older woman, uh, younger man, you'll never see that, that criticized. So it's a, it's a, that is actually a very bizarre one. And there is a gender double standard here that is actually, you know, quite ridiculous. Okay, uh, let's pivot artfully into uh, Ukraine now. <laughs> um, so the title of this room, which you you chose, is Biden renounces regime change. I'm not sure I would have exactly phrased it th- th- that way, which is why I added my little uh, qualifier in parentheses. Or did he? Uh-huh. Um, because you know when when Biden infamously said at the climax of that speech that he gave in Poland in March that you know Putin must go. That was instantly, quote unquote, walked back by administration officials saying, look, this doesn't mean that there's any change in policy or whatever. So it's not so new, per se, that Biden would be at least ostensibly renouncing the idea that he wants to forcibly impose regime change in Russia. Um, But I guess my issue is that that's really only rhetoric, because if you look at what's being done in terms of tangible action, That New York Times op-ed where he says that he's not looking to oust Putin um, was tied to his announcement that he was approving this deployment of long-range rocket systems to Ukraine. And if you look at actually at least how certain Ukrainian officials are receiving this, and this guy Ilya Podnobuk-something-enko, who is this um, quote-unquote Kiev independent reporter – who seems to be serving on the front lines and, you know, had said that he was brothers in arms with the Azov Battalion. He was saying that because of the, this one shipment that's coming from Biden and this other kind of secondary shipment that's coming from the approval by the Biden administration for the British to send this other kind of weapon system, the Ukrainian military is getting essentially everything they wanted um, in terms of these new rocket systems anyway. And you know, that, that couple that with... How it was it was simultaneously reported this week that the U.S. is on the verge. I don't know if it's been confirmed yet, but the U.S. was at, at least on the verge of approving these uh, this new type of drone 
to be sent to Ukraine that has an even longer potential range of, of combat, you know, to be that it could fire, you know, hellfire missiles deep into Russian territory. Um, so <laughs> it's clever on the part of the whoever wrote this op-ed mm. to kind of couch it as a Biden, like at least appearing to tamp down the aim, the, the, the maximalist aims that might otherwise be attributed to U.S. strategy, while at the same time essentially ushering in another phase of military escalation, because that's what this is. I mean, when you're, when you're constantly approving more and more intense forms of weaponry that's being deployed, then that is a form of military escalation. And yet, because he ostensibly renounces regime change in this op-ed, people seem to lose sight of that. So, I mean, I think it's it's actually somewhat uh, adroit from just a PR perspective. But in terms of like what the actual policy is, it's just more of the same, which is just these constant incremental escalations in the scale of and intensity of the U.S. military commitment. Yeah. So, how the uh, the missiles that they're sending uh, the latest reporting uh well, well how far can they go did they get the ones that were like 200 miles um i think the the, the they're sending miss rocket systems that have the capacity to uh, shoot 200 them, miles yeah. depending on what kind of rockets are used and they don't um, give but them the, the type of rocket being used can go apparently 50 miles um yeah but that doesn't even make a whole lot of a difference because you know, a Ukrainian military unit in uh, Kharkiv can hit Belograd, Russia, which is one of the main logistics hubs, with a 50-mile um, rocket. Yeah. So, I mean, does, no. does it really make that much difference to Russia if they strike targets that are 50 miles within their territory versus 200? Well, it could, it could make it. I mean, 150 miles radius could make a difference. But I mean, I think the point is, like, who believes this is the end of it, right? Oh, we're going to give you the system capable of it, but we're never going to give you the... No, like, we know, like, every step of the way here has been escalation. Now, it's, you know, it's so hard to know how serious it is. Like, you'll see a... You'll see a um, you see all these stories from Eastern Ukraine and they say they don't, you know, where's all this money gone so far? I mean, these, they say they get to the Eastern front and they have nothing. Right. So like, what's happening to it? I mean, is, is you know, is, is there corruption here? It's not getting to people because like you read the New York times and it's like, they're there, uh, they're there in Poland or wherever this is coming in from. And they're watching like the, uh, the planes go in. So something is going into Ukraine. I mean, is it not enough? Are they just using it all? Um, or, you know, is it not getting there? Is, is there corruption? Is there something else going on? I, you know, I don't know. Uh, the, um, and so I, you know, it's, and in terms of this, in terms of this drone, just so people are aware, Reuters reported this yesterday. Here's the article quote, the Biden administration plans to sell Ukraine four MQ one C gray Eagle drones that can be armed with hellfire missiles for battlefield use against Russia. The sale is significant because it puts an advanced reusable U.S. system capable of multiple deep strikes on the battlefield against Russia for the first time. Um, so, I mean, this whole kind of de- debate over whether there yeah. are mi- short, you know, uh, mid- mid-range missiles or rockets versus long-range missiles, I mean, it seems like it doesn't make a whole lot of a difference because the only – because number one, the U.S. always admits U.S. officials always admit when they're given anonymity that they can't even track it one way or another, no. as was in that Politico article from today. I mean, they have yeah. no mechanism to actually monitor 
how these weapons are being used in the first place. And then supposedly in terms of the missiles not being shot into Russia, that only came with the assurance from Zelensky that they wouldn't be shot into Russia. Yeah. It's not even clear what agency Zelensky has over much of the Ukrainian military. I mean, the Ukrainian military intelligence chief will say stuff on any given day that's just diametrically opposite from what Zelensky says, just in terms of, like, do they plan to drive Russia out of Crimea? Zelensky will say, you know, maybe not. And then, you know, the, this military intelligence chief will say, yeah, of course we will. And it's, it's not even clear, like, what the chain of command is a lot of the time, because this is like a brand new military apparatus that's been cultivated in part by the U.S. since 2014. So... These assurances are like – it seems like they're as good as the paper that they're written on, and I don't think they're written on paper. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. The, no, they're, they're, worth, they're worth nothing. I mean you think if Ukraine you know, hits Russia, like the American media and like you know, the American establishment is going to be like, oh, no, like how could they hit Russia? I mean they, they'll, be, they'll be heroes, right? Like Biden's going to be like, I'm going to cut off your – I'm going to cut off the weapons going to you now. No, it's not going to. I mean you know, so yeah, they, this is – you know, this is escalation. I mean it's – you know, the question is, is it going to get there uh, fast enough to make a difference? Um, and it looks like Russia is advancing. How much of this stuff matters? You know, we, we, don't, we don't know. Um, and they already have struck Russia, struck within, within yeah. Russia. I mean, there was yeah. a, a, a strike on, in uh, Belograd in March that I, don't, I think you, you might recall this. Initially, the Ukrainian officials who were asked about it were, you know, played coy, where they didn't admit that it was them. But then a couple of weeks later, the New York Times reports that it was, of course, the Ukraine military who launched this helicopter attack within Russian territory, you know, conceivably using U.S.-provided weaponry. And then another amazing event that hasn't really been adequately kind of fleshed out is that on the, that day when uh, Austin and Blinken went for – did their secret trip into Kiev – um, that the night that they were there, there was this giant series of explosions at a military logistics hub, something like 90 miles within Russia. Now, was that a, a, a direct strike by the Ukrainian military? Was it some kind of cyber offensive? Hard to say. We did just get confirmation, of course, from a British outlet today that had the temerity to ask from the head of the NSA that the U.S. has conducted what this guy called um, offensive cyber operations against Russia. I mean, that could include something like, you know, has been done at uh, uh, with regard to Iran on plenty of occasions where they blow physically blow something up, um, as you know, could have been done with this this logistics hub when Austin and uh, Blinken were there. I mean, it's, it, we don't know for sure, uh, but the point is that you know, there every subsequent deployment of higher and higher grade weaponry just continues to bolster the momentum toward escalation. So this idea that Biden kind of just mitigates it by saying in the New York Times, oh, look, we're not trying to oust Putin. I mean, that's the lowest possible bar that he could have cleared to not escalate. Okay, so you're not trying to do regime change against the country with the world's largest nuclear arsenal that's supposed to make everybody feel totally reassured about where things are heading. I mean, please, it's a joke. Yeah, no, you're you're right. I don't, th- you know, I don't want to imply that I think it's actually, you know, that like, you know, that that's it's that. I mean, there's some, you know, I, it's an indication maybe there's some limit on uh, sort of the craziness of the rhetoric. Like they're willing to sort of say that they're not going to be as crazy as possible, which you know, angers some people who just want who are just completely crazy and want you know, like what they you know what they think of as moral certainty. 
But, you know, there's not any indication that the, you know, also the other thing that Biden said in the, uh, in the article was, you know, we'll never like uh, pressure Ukraine to make any kind of ter- territorial concessions, right, uh, privately or publicly. And it's like, you know, if that's the case, so your 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 uh, your sort of um, your policy is just to arm the Ukrainians like forever and like never ask for you know anything back from them or any kind of you know way to end the war. I mean, the Ukrainians, I mean, well, they'll you know they'll probably fight as long as they think that you know weapons are weapons are coming in and um, as long as they have sort of that some more. So this is this is literally what endless war looks like, and then event you know that eventually, uh, I guess the goal is that eventually Ukraine. You know, and Ukraine always has the choice. So if like if Ukraine is losing, I mean, it's going to keep fighting. If Ukraine is winning, it's just going to think it's going to keep winning. If, you, if you're basically fighting a war and you have a blank check right from coming from abroad, I mean, there's no incentive to ever make ever make peace. So, yeah, you're yeah. right. I mean, the way, and there's the and there's always this nonsensical conceit that if the U.S. were to impose some kind of limitation on its provision of military, quote, aid, that would somehow be undermining Ukraine's agency. Right, because we have to all respect Ukraine's agency to, to determine what kind of conditions it finds acceptable in terms of potentially making a territorial concession or some other plank of a theoretical you know, ceasefire deal or whatever. And it's just uh, – <laughs> it doesn't make any sense in terms of like how do you even define agency because we keep hearing, including from commanders on the battlefield – and this was also in the New York Times, and the New York Times seems to have – kind of dropped a little bit of its just all-consuming propagandistic tilt and is reporting a little bit more critically on the Ukraine side over the past maybe couple weeks, which is notable in its own right. But they even they – they quoted a Ukrainian commander saying, look, what we need right now is to get the weapons from Biden. So they're saying that the fate of their battlefield strategy hinges directly on how rapidly Biden personally will authorize the – shipments of these weapons so how, how do they have that how do they exist within this just vacuum of agency that needs to be deferred to and respected when they're saying that their agency is not sufficient their agency actually is intertwined inextricably with the u.s um so there is no agency here the agency in fact lies with anybody it, it lies with the u.s um and yet we're, we're told that because of this whole agency issue the u.s cannot impose any kind of expectations at all uh, over, you know, some sort of measure that could potentially bring an end to hostilities. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I mean, this is common in American foreign policy. So like it was before the, uh, uh, before the war, I mean, the U S would say, you know, Ukraine has a right to join NATO. Right. And the question is whether the U S would accept NATO. Right. And so it was a very like thing like, Oh no, Ukraine has agency. Ukraine can make any alliances, what it wants. Ukraine can do whatever it wants. I mean, there was this thing, you know, this was the, um, uh, the hang up in the, uh, war in Afghanistan. It was like the Taliban wanted to negotiate with America because they rightly saw that it was the United States, that it was the power behind the government. Um, and the U S would, you know, for years and years, I mean, this would, this went on where the U S said no you know the legitimate it's the legitimate government of afghanistan uh that you need to be talking to so the u.s has this thing where it like props up these uh these governments or these you know factions or whatever and then says you know they're the ones who are like the reality you know the the uh uh the the real uh 
uh, you know, the, the legitimate authority in, in this country. And then it goes and then, you know, it, it just refuses to, and the other, you know, the people on the other side see, no, like it's actually America that's doing something here. America is the power, you know, there's the sort of the hand behind the throne. And then, you know, and then they like you, and then you even, then you, you know, like the foreign policy actually goes haywire because you're stuck on this point of who's actually really in charge. And the United States does it, wants to pretend like, uh, like it's not. Uh, so yeah, of course. I mean, if you're, if you're subsidizing the war effort, I mean, the U.S., the, you know, U.S. and Europe not only giving weapons, but they're like propping up, uh, Ukraine's economy, you know, they're doing stuff against Russia on, the, on behalf of Ukraine. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is, uh, you know, this is America and Europe's war too. And they have a right to, you know, they have a right to, to put conditions on aid to try to, you know, advance their own interests through all of this. And I think it's like, I think maybe we're taking it too seriously. Like, I think that, you know, if, if they want, you know, what they could want is just they want to bleed Russia as long as possible. So it helps, like, you know, they have a, they have the Biden administration, the Mike McFalls of the world. Uh, they have common cause with the, with the Ukrainians and the Ukrainian nationalists, right? Because, you know, they, they want a longer war. They don't want, both of them don't want a, uh, to arrive at some kind of peace. They say, you know, we don't want to take away Ukraine's autonomy, but it's really not about that. I mean, it's really about they like the Ukrainian policy and they want to just be as maximalist as possible. Yeah, and then in terms of people assigning way too much significance to this extremely well uh, choreographed Biden op-ed, which, you know, <laughs> it's with probably, I mean, I don't know for sure, obviously, but it seems like it was probably Jake Sullivan or somebody who wrote it and then Biden just signs off on it. So who knows how much it actually reflects his own genuine views. I think you're probably better off listening to what he actually says on the handful of occasions where he's speaking without inhibition. Um, but like, okay, so how do we weigh this ostensible renunciation of regime change in the op-ed versus what Biden said in the Warsaw speech. How do we weigh his disavowal of the idea that he's just going to pro that the U.S. would just prolong the war to weaken Russia with Lloyd Austin, the Defense Secretary, saying exactly that like a month and a half ago? I mean, there's no formula for how we can really ascertain the truth of the policy here, other than to just look at what the policy is, aside from the rhetoric, and the policy is this constant escalation you know i've i've been doing some just intermittent research on stuff that uf presidents have said in the run-up to different wars in the past and this used to be relatively well known among the media just in that there was this system especially with like a vietnam or iraq right i mean and even afghanistan where there is just this systematic deceit that u.s officials at every level of government up to and including the president employed to cast the war in a much different light than what was actually going on policy wise um so you know on the when, when lyndon johnson in 1965 was responding to the gulf of tonkin incident here's what he said and of course this was basically the impetus that johnson needed to orchestrate in order to follow through on the escalation that he had been in the works anyway but here's what here's what he said when he was addressing to the public on TV the implications of the Gulf of Tonkin incident in 1965. He said, we Americans know, although others appear to forget, the risks of spreading wider conflict. We, will, we still seek no wider war. Our response for the president will be limited and fitting. That's what Johnson said 
1965 to the public when he was doing the exact opposite in private. And of course, that gradually came out over time. And this is not any breaking news that I'm unveiling. Um, but it just seems like the, nothing about the coverage of this current intervention reflects an awareness of what is in the very you know, recent record as to how presidents talk in public about the nature of the escalation that they're ushering in and what they do in private when they're this invested in, you know, quote unquote victory in some foreign entanglement that's far afield from what Americans can actually see with their own eyes. Yeah, it goes back longer than this. I mean, World War One, World War Two. I mean, it's just like uh, it's interesting. I mean, how you know explicitly like the uh, the presidents in each of the, each of those conflicts um, was lying to the American people at the time, and like how what they were actually doing to actually they wanted you know to bring the country into into the war each time. So it's like, yeah, this is this is this is not new. And you're right. I think we should. Um, you know, the one thing maybe that's a little bit different about this case is sort of like the political incentive is to like escalate. I don't think there's any benefit to say, uh, you know, we're going to go easy on Russia. Or we're going to have a negotiated settlement. I think if anything, it's, you know, it's the media and it's, uh, you know, the think tankers, the people who write op-eds, the journalists and newspaper columnists. Uh, I think they want as, you know, as harsh a line in Russia as possible. Um, and then, you know, the American people don't want to, don't want a war, but it's not like, I think the American people care, like whether you say, uh, you know, whether you say Putin, uh, needs to go or there should be regime change. I don't think people get the sort of implications of, of what that is. So just to say Putin has to go is probably, you know, is potentially like, just like a crowd pleaser, like Putin is an evil man. He should go. I don't know if that actually hurts you. Um, and, you know, and so this is maybe a reason to like take it more seriously. Like maybe they're doing it not because it's politics, if it's not necessarily good politics uh maybe they're doing it uh because it um you know because it can actually because it, you know they're actually trying to de-escalate somehow now, now the rest of their actions maybe uh don't look like that right but you know I, I mean what do you think do you think there's a political incentive for them to lie in this case like there was in vietnam um well i i think it's sort of mixed uh politically because you know, when you look at the polling around what people believe is the proper response from the U.S., pretty consistently, you know, especially when the no-fly zone was a live debate, there was opposition to the no-fly zone the more people understood about what it actually meant, right? So they the, – the, the level of support for what was – characterized as over direct U.S. military involvement was relatively lower than just overall support for the policy of like aiding Ukraine, even if in practice that distinction is not always that clear. I mean, how, 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 much, how much different really is sending tons of weaponry to the point that you're effectively subsidizing the military and, you know, doing these direct operational intelligence um, arrangements with the Ukrainian military so they can conduct offensive strikes. How, how much different is that from like a direct U.S. military involvement? Well, I mean, one potentially entails troops on the ground and one doesn't. But other than that metric, which I'm not denying is a significant metric, it is. But other than that, it's kind of not that different. Um, so I think Biden probably wouldn't want to be seen as on his own accord bringing in a policy that was more along the lines of an overt military inter intervention. Um, but I think you're right in, in that 
all the political incentives militate in favor of escalation. Um, so maybe he doesn't have to lie. I mean, maybe I think there are, there are probably factions within the government, meaning the U.S. government, that are genuinely concerned about provoking some kind of direct military response from Russia against the U.S. And so on that basis, they want to kind of be cautious about what they're signaling or what they're doing. Um, but I think it's kind of a mixed, a mixed bag. Um, you know, I think if, if there were, if there were like a Pearl Harbor type scenario, God forbid, where Russia launches an attack that is just unmistakable on some U.S. Um, some U.S. you know military installation or whatever, you know that would probably potentially be. I mean, this is sort of perverse to say, but that could be politically beneficial for Biden because that it would have this inevitable you know rallying around the flag effect that he didn't really get as much at the outset of this conflict. So, I think there are some political incentives to potentially not be. Uh, fully forthright about the scale of U.S. involvement and some that could maybe go in the opposite direction. I think it's just sort of a muddle at the moment. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think there's, uh, yeah, I think you're, you're, now that I think about it, I think you're probably right. There's um, uh, the, you know, when Biden said the thing about, um, you know, because there is some limit to sort of, so I think, that, you know, I, I my vision of like what the public is doing is they're basically just following the lead of the media and politicians here. So when Biden said, uh, originally said, um, Putin must go, that, that wasn't a good sort of political, um, that wasn't, you know, a good political outcome for it. I remember he was criticizing the media for a few days, you know, so it's like, there's some limit, like same thing with the no fly zone. It's like, I think the people in the media, I mean, they're, you know, they're, they're, pu- you know, they're pushing for sort of lower levels of escalation, but that's something that like literally is, you know, f- shooting Russian planes out of the sky or trying to overthrow their government, you know, there is some kind of limit. Now, I'm sure people like uh, Alexander Vindman and, you know, McFall and like these Russia experts and, you know, the Maddow types and the really, you know, crazy anti-Russia people. I'm sure for them, Biden can never go far enough. Um, But, you know, most like you're just normal New York Times and Washington Post writer, you know, if it's not Max Boot or something, um, is probably not... uh, uh, you know, is probably not on board with that. So I think, yeah, I guess, I guess you're probably right. He does have an incentive to try to sort of look uh, reasonable, um, and then yeah, keep escalating. I mean, do you do you read them as having like a a plan here, or do you re- do you read them as sort of like you know, you know, they want to bleed Russia or something like that, or do you read them as sort of just doing po- what the politically most convenient thing is at any particular moment, and then dealing with whatever happens? Um, well, it's hard to say what the quote unquote plan would be. I mean, it's not like there's a document with a plan written on it that could be potentially obtained and analyzed, or maybe there is. Well, I mean, like, maybe in there's like Biden, recess and, of the Biden and Lincoln yeah. could have like a, you know, like they want this outcome, like, you know, we're going to do this in six months and then get this concession from the Russians or make Ukrainians do this, right? Like it would just be Biden and Blinken and, you know, whoever, like the top few people, right? I, they, that's, that's what a plan would look like. Well, I mean, the, the the plan, at least as can be inferred from that op-ed, is that, and again, you got to take it with a grain of salt because who knows what the actual machinations are behind the scenes. But the plan in that op-ed is that the U.S. is intent on subsidizing the war 
for as long as it takes for the Ukrainians to eventually launch a counteroffensive to drive Russia at least out of the places that it's seized since the war began. And here, it's not just the Donbass. Um, it's not just um, some of these places that might be seen as more kind of negotiable. I mean, I mean Russia is talking about potentially incorporating this uh, area, Kherson, Kherson I'm, I'm probably not pronouncing it exactly right, K-E-H-E-R-S-O-N, into, into Russia. I mean, where they're issuing Russian passports, et cetera. And that's not in the Donbass. Um, so, I mean, what are, what are we saying here, that they just have a blank check for the indefinite future until the point that the Ukraine military has the wherewithal to launch a full-fledged counteroffensive against places including Kherson and, and, and Mariupol? I mean, what, Zelensky's going to retake Mariupol? Is that what we're Crimea, being told? I mean, Crimea, too. I mean, so, yeah, I mean, Zelensky said today that, you know, Russia had 20%. Uh, of Ukrainian territory. I mean, some of that territory has been under Russian rule since 2014. So you have, I mean, you have Crimea, you have uh, uh, almost all of Luhansk, the uh, uh, Severodonetsk and Luchansk are the, apparently the last two really population centers in Luhansk. Um, and then they're going to try to take the bus. But you're right, it's not even, that's not even the end of it. There's Kharsad and then there's uh, uh, the Melitopol, so to see, you know, the, the, uh, that, that too. So yeah, it's, it's like 20% of Ukraine. Ukraine is going to have to fight like an actual offensive war and take a lot of territory. We don't know they can do that. I mean, they took back territory that, like, you know, Russia, like, you know, they had all these columns that tried to go to Kiev and tried to go to uh, Kharkiv, and, like, you know, they withdrew. But, like, areas where Russia has settled down and, like, taken her... Like, we haven't seen Ukraine uh, take take a take a city back. I mean, it, urban conflict. The Russians, I mean, the war has shown that taking cities is hard, right? I mean, the, the Russians have, you know, the cities are the hardest thing for Russians to take. So if Ukraine wants to do that, you have several major cities that they're going to have to take. They're going to have to take Donetsk, Luhansk, even the stuff, even if it's just the stuff that's like February 24th, forget Crimea, Donetsk, Luhansk, uh, just to take back Kherson and then to take back uh, Melitopol and then to take back, uh, you know, uh, Severodonetsk and Mariupol. I mean, that is, that is a huge, I mean, that's more, that's like, you know, they have to accomplish what Russia basically um, accomplished, um, and that's going to be bloody, and that's going to be hard. And you know, who like who knows? I mean, people like it's like Ukraine has like an unlimited, unlimited financial and uh, and uh, military resources potentially coming in from the West. But who knows if it has the um, morale? I mean, there was a story we saw in the Times the other day uh, where uh, basically, you know, the, the, these, uh, these national defense forces who were willing to fight in order to defend their own city or their own territory, um, do not want to be sent out to the East. And, you know, a lot of these places are Russian speakers. A lot of those places, you know, they sort of like Russia. And so you can see why, I mean, you can see why there wouldn't be much motivation. So there's no, you know, guarantee that Ukraine has sort of the ability to, you know, the ability and willingness to motivate people to go and take these areas. Now, you know, what is like, you know, so that's like, the, you know, that's the, um, you know, so that, that's like the official, that's the official plan. If you just take, you know, the Biden's New York Times op-ed uh, and a face value, you know, there's no reason to think that that actually is the plan. Uh, but maybe it is because there's literally, you know, there's not, there's no other, if you look at their behavior, there's, there's nothing else that indicates, you know, that there's anything else that they're doing. So maybe it is. Yeah. And just, and, and just think of how it would be received if Biden were to say, look, Zelensky, maybe you should take the Kissinger route and just give up 
her son or Mario Paul. I mean, Biden would be, I mean, the the Republicans would do what they would always do, given the political opportunism of the situation and call him an appeaser. You'd have most of the Democrats calling him an appeaser. All the think tanks are so invested in this that Biden would be called an appeaser. So, I mean, Biden couldn't politically withstand that, I don't think. Um, So I think the, the, the plan is just to kind of barrel along mindlessly on this momentum toward some sort of indeterminate confrontation yeah did we did we talk last week about the kissinger comments yeah we did okay so yeah so the kissinger comments wasn't even about Carson. i mean kissinger was saying give no, back all the post february 24th stuff and just let russia have the stuff from before february 24th. and that right. that was too much <laughs> and that was too that, much yeah yeah, exactly. So it's like, you know, Kissinger's like offering on behalf of Russia, like giving up all this land. And like the Ukrainians are like, no, 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 like we won't even, you know, we won't even take that land back. We need, you know, as a, as a settlement. Uh, so there's no, I mean, you're, I mean, it's good to, you know, when this thing first started, it was like everyone was paying attention. It was the biggest thing on, on Twitter. Uh, it was, you know, people were, I think they thought like Ukraine was going to just pull, uh, throw Russia back. And, like, that was going to be the, you know, the end of it. And, like, people got excited. But now, like, nobody, you know, it's just become sort of a slog. And nobody really, nobody really has, you know, anything useful, you know, to uh, to push for other than, you know, keep, just keep, let the war go on indefinitely. Now, I think the U.S., I mean, I think the, you know, I think one reason there could be a plan is that, like, you know, I mean, a lot of these people dislike Russia. They think, you know, if you really, if you want to actually, I mean, it does make like, you know, you can think about this in a way that makes sense. You want Ru- you want Russia to be as weak as possible. You want it to lose, you know, uh, soldiers. You want it to, you know, waste uh, military equipment. You know, you want to sanction it. You want to hurt it. You want to make it unable to uh, enact any aggression. So you just you keep them bogged down in Ukraine forever, right? That's the Soviet Union in in Afghanistan. Uh, so, I mean, if you sort of, if you assume that's the plan, I think it does make, it does actually make sense, whether it's moral or not is a, is a different uh, question. But I, you know, I don't think this, I don't think, you know, we, we could look at this policy in a way that's like actually rational and sensible. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I just think that another, another stat that I came up with that people found shocking, but it was, <laughs> it's true is um, this? I, I got this because I was reading some of the old... I mean, the New York Times, actually, I have to commend because it has a great archive that you can look through on the Wall Street Journal for some reason. Yeah. There's just no archive search. Um, but the New York Times, they've done a great job digitizing it. Um, ProQuest, you go to ProQuest, and you have to have a subscription, but you can search and then find stuff, and it won't give you access, but then you can, like, Google the article, so you can, like, browse ProQuest. And then, like, I know, but I'm talking know. about stuff from, like, you know, the... 50s or 40s can you google I think, that I think, the course, I, I think they might have that for wall street journal yeah you should you should check i mean that, that's a pretty extensive thing okay uh either way um by uh march 1964 in vietnam the u.s had already been sending quote-unquote military aid to south vietnam for nine years you know under eisenhower and then kennedy and then into lyndon johnson and no, it wasn't the number one issue on the American consciousness, but it was always on the back burner. The debates around it were sort of heating up. You see strikingly similar rhetoric in how the need to be arming and funding South Vietnam was sold to the public as the need to arm and fund Ukraine is being sold today, where it was the kind of just platitudes about um, defending democracy 
and that's always the go-to, even you know, <laughs> World War One onwards to Iraq and everything else. Um, but you know, it was also this, you know, the quintessential domino theory, which I th- is basically what is the operating principle now with regard to Ukraine. And some people will frame it differently. They'll, well, they'll have uh, at some points a more literalistic interpretation where they'll say, if we don't stop. Russia in Ukraine, they're going to invade a bunch of other countries, including potentially NATO countries. So we have to invest now in obtaining a battlefield victory or else we're going to pay more down the road. That's one version of the domino theory type argument. Um, But also they'll make a more theoretical version of the argument that can even include Taiwan, right? Because so they're saying we'll embolden these autocracies or we'll – send a message to tyrants around the world that they can do whatever they want by force. Biden made a version of this argument actually in his op-ed that everybody was saying was so shrewd. Um, But anyway, by 1964, March of 1964, so this is prior to the full-fledged U.S. military escalation that Johnson eventually did um, bring forth, but by March 1964, in terms of today's dollars, so adjusted for inflation, the U.S. had committed $27 billion in, in military and economic aid to Vietnam, South Vietnam, after nine years. And in less than three months, and this is not even taking into account aid that's been sent to Ukraine prior to the war, of which you, know, you could count in the billions. But just, just in terms of the aid that's been allocated to Ukraine over the course of the war since late February – the U.S. has committed $54 billion to Ukraine. So the, in other words, at least it's just in terms of the sheer financial figure, the scale of the commitment to Ukraine exceeds that of Vietnam in the first nine years of U.S. intervention. So why do I, I mention that only because in terms of the longer-term plan I th- or what is the end game, or what – kind of resolution do people find conceivable? I think we should at least first come to grips with how extensive the commitment already is um, and how it could meander into different scenarios that maybe we don't want to bring ourselves to even try to conceive of at the moment. Um, when the U.S. announced this week that it was going to be sending these long-range rocket systems – a Kremlin spokesperson said something that they hadn't said yet at any point uh, of the war, which is that the R- Russia now reserves the right to proactively attack U.S. forces or attack the U.S. just in general um, to prevent these rockets from being used for va- battlefield operations. I mean, they've made sort of gestures about that potentiality in the past, but this was the most concrete statement they've made to that effect yet. So, I mean, who knows? Um, it's, uh, th- that's why I think people really need to – yeah, I mean, it's sort of faded from the, more, the kind of frenzied period of when the war first launched. But that's in a way even more dangerous now. It's just somewhat on the back burner and yet the escalation is more and more intense that just people aren't paying as much attention. That, that kind of could create a situation where – a cataclysmic event takes place sort of under our noses, but we're sort of all fighting about AR-15s and inflation or whatever. Yeah, we talked about this. I mean, whether they are how much we should be worried about sort of the potential for escalation. I mean, it's always worth worrying about uh, in a situation like this. Um, but 
you know, it's it's gonna. I mean, the midterm is gonna be interesting. I mean, it's because it's gonna be. You know, the, this is the first political reality, and you know, Biden's economy and the inflation. I mean, this is all connected to the Ukraine war. So if we just want, you know, if you just want to sort of have the best economy possible to maximize your odds of having a good election outcome, you you know, you I, th- I think you would probably try to. Uh, settle things down as quickly as possible. Um, but, you know, the, the other side of that is if you try to do that, then like the media rips you apart and then you, you look like a failure on foreign policy and the Republicans jump. So he's, he's actually in a bad position um, either way. But if it turns out, you know, they made the wrong decision by, uh, you know, prolonging the war by, you know, some providing unconditional aid to Ukraine. If the Republicans, you know, they do not only well, uh, in the midterms, but they do much better than uh, people thought. Um, you know, there could be some kind of, uh, you know, there could be some kind of course correction. I can't imagine the Democrats doing well in the midterm, so it's like I can't even imagine uh, that's that scenario to like make them, you know, want to escalate more or whatever. But you know, I think it's going to be like they're going to have like a bad midterm or like a very bad midterm, and then like maybe that forces a rethink. But maybe you know, maybe it doesn't. But, I mean, can you really imagine Democrats explaining their losses in the midterms by reference to faulty policy on Ukraine? Uh, I think they're going to – I think – so what were they going to say? That it was politically inopportune for us to focus as much as we did on Ukraine? I don't think anybody is going to have that argument. I don't think it's necessarily they focus on Ukraine. They talk about Ukraine or whatever. I think it's that the Ukraine conflict – uh, contributing to the conflict continuing has hurt the economy, and it's the economy that matters. So they don't have to explain all that. Um, I think what they would do is they would just sort of they'd have to explain it to themselves and understand it that way. I think Biden is, you know, I think Biden sees like the political, you know, implications of different things, and he sees the connection between the economy and uh, the and the war. Now he might not be able to do the. Uh, course correction anyway, because again, like, you know, he's, he's trapped by, you know, the, the media and the establishment and the foreign policy elites. Um, but um, yeah, it's, uh, you know, the question is, you know, how do we get to, how do we get to like a real escalation in a war? I don't know. I mean, the fact that it's, this is not Vietnam, it's not, you know, there, there's not a, uh, you know, there's a nuclear power on the other side. So that makes it scarier in a way, but also makes like, you know, Americans sending ground troops to Russia, uh, un- unthinkable. I think you know the, the way the way you get there is like you assume that there's no way Russia will like respond to something. So you might you know you see these pundits all the time say stuff like you know hit you know like do a no fly zone, do this, do that. It's not like Russia wants war with the United States, uh, which is like which is you know uh, true that they probably don't want war with the United States. Uh, but at the same time, if both sides you know think like that, Russia goes you know we'll do then we'll do Y in response to X. Um, and then, you know, if somebody has to do something else, that is a, uh, you know, that's potentially, uh, uh, that's how you, that's how you escalate. Uh, so it's, yes, yeah, we're thinking about like how we get to that point. I mean, how do we, how well, do we I think, I think one potential route, one potential route to that is something that I've been cognizant of for a while now, because when I was in the UK, I got into a think tank presentation by an MP, who you know is in the Conservative Party and is head of this sort of select committee on defense, where he was saying that the UK needs to lead the way in fashioning a plan for a naval intervention in Odessa, because if there's one red line that cannot be tolerated for Russia to cross, it's the military seizure of Odessa. Obviously, there's already sort of a naval, I mean, I think some people dispute that it's a blockade, but whatever it is, they've rendered inoperable the port activity of Odessa, which is why there's this now 
global uh, potential famine situation, right? Yeah. You, see, um, you see, the Russians said that they would uh, they would allow uh, grain to leave at the, uh, like today or yesterday. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they they blame it on supposedly the Ukrainian military mining the meaning placing mines throughout the Black Sea as the real impediment to getting grain shipments out. But the the point is the point I was going to make is that you know if you listen to what Michael McFall says. And he's somebody who I've been, who I've been uh, feuding with a little bit r- recently. Um, but his prognostication is that Russia won't stop until they capture all of what's called Novo Russia. Uh-huh. Um, and that goes well beyond the Donbass. That stretches all the way to Odessa. Um, so you know, if, if Russia is successful in you know, capturing all of um, the Donbass and – you know, makes its way through uh, Donetsk after having captured uh, Lugansk and, and so on. Um, if McFall's right, and I have no idea if he's right. Maybe he is, maybe he is, and not somebody who I would, whose assurances I would necessarily put full faith in. Uh, but let's say that is the real scenario that's unfolding. I, I mean, I, I could I could see it being stirred up that the U.S. now must you know support like a naval intervention. Or something to that effect to prevent the capturing of Odessa, and they could even sell it on humanitarian grounds, right? They, they could say, like, look, we need to do this in order to avert global famine. Um, and in fact, there was a plan that was put forward that the UK um, defense minister endorsed from Lithuania, of all places, because you know they're, they're one of our esteemed NATO allies. Uh, but but they they were putting forth a plan for a humani- quote unquote humanitarian naval intervention in Odessa. Um, so I mean that that's a conceivable route to escalation. To me, at least in terms of potentially hearkening a new uh, or uh, you know, ushering in a new phase of the war that a lot of people don't really want to think about at the moment, apparently, uh, but is at least plausible. You know, given the current trajectory where Russia is advancing and maybe is emboldened to fulfill further uh, war aims. Yeah, uh, the um, yeah, the, I mean, Anatoly Karlin thinks the same thing more, more than Novorossiya. He thinks, you know, yeah. Uh, last time I checked with him, I haven't checked with him in a, in a month or two, but uh, that Russia just basically wants to take all of Ukraine. That was the goal from the start, and that's still the goal. It's just going to be a war of attrition, and they're just going to uh, try to take all of U- uh, Ukraine. Uh, so, you know, whether, you know, there might be a assault on Odessa at some point. It depends on how everything else goes. I mean, the question is, would this president, does this president try to go and, uh, and uh, um, you know, get, get rid of the blockade? Uh, you know, I mean, the, it's like, you know, as time moves on, it's like there's a big shock and then it becomes a current thing. And then there's like all this pressure to escalate and do something. Uh, but then, like, you know, there has to be, like, another major event to sort of motivate some kind of drastic action. Uh, so it's, like, hard to see, like, just the course of the war, I mean, that that happening. And also, like, the sh- you know, markets are going to adjust over time. So this grain stuff, I mean, it's going to, you know, you're, you're going to see bad stuff in the short term. But in the long term, uh, you know, there's gonna it's going to become less important as time goes on. It just has to because the market, you know, is going to adjust around it. Uh, and so, you know, the question is, you know, is, is how do we how do we imagine this? Uh, happening. I think it has to be, you know, I think there has to be, I don't think the war can just be continuing like it is, sort of war of attrition, and then like, you know, one day, like, you know, uh, uh, 
Biden just sends ships into the Black Sea and tries taking the defender. Odessa. I think it has to be more dramatic. Now, maybe if Odessa is under threat, maybe that is the thing. It's it's hard. It's like it's a question of like whether you can sort of uh, you can sort of call up that same energy that you had in the early days of the war, where people were willing to do a lot, you know, stuff that goes beyond you know what what was thinkable before. Um, but I don't know. I, I sort of think people are. Um, it's hard. I sort of think it's hard to stumble into these things, and people are, just, you know, not that interested in Ukraine anymore. And it would take that for for this president, at least, to uh, to actually do something like that. Yeah, um, I don't know. I, I can foresee a number of scenarios where they can actually gin up that same kind of intensity of feeling, or that was evident at the beginning of the war. I just, you know, think it it, it, it would take one sort of viral moment of some kind to spur that into action again. Um, I don't think it will be that complicated to do. Um, anyway, let's go to some callers now. Uh, Rob, you are up. Rob, if you're there, please unmute. Rob going once. Rob going twice. Rob, feel free to join back on the caller list. Once you're available, Matthew, you are up, and I have a feeling I'm going to be uh, torn a new one for how ridiculous I am. Oh, and Matthew's gone as well. Oh, okay. Uh, well, if um, oh, and then Matthew's back. Matthew, feel free to un- un- unload on that. Okay. By the way, by the way, guys, uh, you know, I, I may it may seem like I I go after you, but I really do appreciate the fact that. I mean, human vanity and human sensitivity are pretty remarkable. And you as pretty public figures do take with with like a plum and serious engagement mind criticisms, which are often very harsh. So I really do respect that. It isn't just a platitude to to ease you up. It's, it's partly that, but, you know, it's it's also substantive. Um, Richard, I on the first point about the age of. Um, of childhood or whatever, you know, as, as a, my, what I do is I'm a, I'm a PhD in history, a PhD student in history. I just upgrade myself. Don't know why, but it really is remarkable how much norms have changed in this regard. But I think generally we'd, we'd agree there for the good. I mean, like, for example, in a kind of pre-liberal medieval society, Typically, like the age of consent, as it were, for sex was was like after a woman menstruates. That could be like the Catholic Church defined it at menstruation plus age twelve is old enough to have sex. And this was you had similar norms in medieval Europe. So I think it is true that feminists and liberals did elevate the age of childhood, and maybe are still doing it. And maybe we think it's going too far, but I think generally as a historical phenomenon. Um, protecting uh, people who aren't very cognitively developed, even if they're in some sense physically um, pubescent or whatever, I think is, is a very good thing. And, and you see the same with child labor and so on. In terms of, of feminists, so I think that it's it's not just, look, I think that the power differential stuff is, is often uh, pushed by feminists and I, I, I have to say I am rather dubious of that. Like, is it really, if, if, if somebody two people are adults and one person has a, has an authoritative position over the other. Is it really, is any sex between them rape or coercion? I think that's a stretch. I think, I think this could be problematic, but it's something that should be dealt with at an individual level. And you should look at what people say. So I agree with that. But I think in terms of like thinking an 18 year old's a child, that's really a broadly shared view. And I think that's probably a product of law more than 
like feminine because like for example take and I, this is not you know this isn't something i agree with but you know like yesterday there was some leak of hunter biden and apparently he looked at like 18 year olds and pornography and like all of twitter is saying he's a pedophile because of that and that's not obviously feminist that's like right-wing people saying he's a pedophile because of looking at presumably um uh presumably like post um 18 teenagers on some pornography site. So I think these are broad social trends. I think in general, they're for the... Right, they're so Hunter yeah. Biden was looking for adult women and then conservatives called him a pedophile. Are you sure they weren't misunderstanding no, like the like story 18, or something? It was like teen on a porn... So I assume um, that it was 18, 19, right? Because 17 would be child... Well, you say teen, yeah. I mean, uh, well, they, I, 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 would, I would guess... I don't know, I haven't seen these tweets, but I would guess that they probably assume that it's underage. I don't think you see... You sh- I don't, I've never seen a conservative complaint, even for Hunter Biden. I've never seen a conservative complaint with uh, consenting adults. I mean, I don't, I don't think that happens. I think you get these think pieces from, like, you know, Salon and stuff. I mean, I, yeah, I've never seen it. Look, I, 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 what you're saying about tradition is true, but I think the traditions were bad. I mean, so it may be a little absurd for people to say a post-pubescent teen a sexual attraction to her is a pedophile. That's in some sense not true, right? Because if you're post-puberty and someone's attracted to a, a woman or man with who's sexually developed, that's not like that sexual orientation. So there's kind of a, a falsehood to it. But on the other hand, maybe it's uh, maybe it's one that makes sense given how, you know, how easily exploited a, an 18-year-old high school senior would be by a 30-year-old, even if that isn't an a unnatural, if you will, sexual orientation or uncommon. Maybe these norms are, are a good thing, you know? I mean, it's, uh, you know, you can say the same thing about other gaps, right? I, intelligence gaps, someone with an IQ of mm-hmm. 150 and someone with an IQ of... 90. I mean, I think a lot of people actually would. They would say that's that's wrong, right? If you if somebody was a genius and someone was borderline, you know, retarded, I think that the, actually people would do that. So maybe, I mean, maybe it's okay. It's not necessarily obvious to me that age is like the big thing. You have rich and poor. You have high IQ, low IQ. You mm-hmm. know, 30 versus 18, is that necessarily, you know, is, is, that a big, is that a big deal? Is a 30-year-old necessarily more powerful than an 18-year-old? Not necessarily. So, I mean, I don't know why it has to be an age thing. I think it's a, it's a, it's a debatable issue, and I appreciate both. I, I see the side of it that wants to stigmatize the man who does this. I also see the, the counter-argument. So I, I think it's an important question. I commend both of you for bringing it up because one is easily vilified. This. The one thing I would disagree with, kind of a side note, it's my like, very qualified defense of like, not contemporary, but let's say historical feminism, which I think you're, <laughs> you would not defend historical feminism. I, I would. Um, I, I would just say that like these, these, these claims that it's creepy and so I think they're widespread and probably a product of, of the law being 18, right? Rather than this is just fem- I think feminists are pushing, you know, some kind of fairly extreme ideas about it's not consensual if the person is in any superior position to in a workplace. But I think these are broader, um, broader views of society. That if you're 30, maybe it's wrong, maybe it's right. But if you're 30 or whatever, or 35, and you're dating an 18 year old, you're creepy or wicked or whatever. Because it's very well, close. But- I, I just want to say, I mean, the reason I brought this up in the first place not, was not because I necessarily wanted to get into a whole can of worms about mm-hmm. age of consent, was, but it was because of, you know, these new proposals around raising the minimum age for purchasing and assault mm-hmm. rifles from 18 to 21. And I just kind of related that to this seeming social drift, cultural drift of not viewing 18 as a reasonable age of consent for a variety of different uh, 
issues. Um, and it, it, you know, with the I, sexual relationships just being one of them. So if it is the case that there is a consensus, I don't think there is necessarily a consensus, but let's say there were, that it's inherently predatory or even abusive for somebody who's 30 to have a sexual relationship with somebody who's 18, then doesn't that reflect like an overall maybe need to just codify that and raise the age of adulthood from 18 to 21 so it would cover everything from having sex to purchasing a gun? Because otherwise, I think well, I, I feel like we increasingly have this really incoherent patchwork of laws and regulations where you know, on the one hand, technically you're an adult if you're 18, from uh, in on, you know, on paper anyway. But on the other hand, you know you have these kind of burgeoning norms, and even in some cases laws and regulations, such as around firearm possession, where you're not actually a full fledged adult at 18. And I just think it, it, the, the principle of it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And I'm not saying I would endorse necessarily raising the mm-hmm. age of adulthood from 18 to 21, but at least that would sort of make it more coherent. Um, as a as a baseline of just societal consensus, rather than kind of just chipping away at legal adulthood in these kind of incremental piecemeal uh, ways. That that yeah, we, I mean, I think yeah. I think the reason we regard eighteen year olds as so young isn't like because of <laughs> their physical appearance or anything like that. I think it's just because they're they're in a state uh, they're in school, right? Not university. They're living with mom and dad at school. They're very often not working. So, like, because of how our society is organized, um, they're seen as children. And maybe that's not right. I think it's a reasonable discussion to have. And I I commend you guys for having it. But, um, you know, I I think that the reason for it is that they're not, you know, they're not working full time. They're not self-reliant. They're in this very kind of, yeah... But I mean, many of them are working full time and self reliant, mm-hmm. right? I mean, That's maybe fair, yeah. maybe more so in the past than today. Um, right. But I mean, they they're, they're they have they're legally equipped with the ability to be self sufficient <laughs> at eighteen, right? Um, and yet, in other domains, we're now signifying through these laws and regulations that they're not equipped for full adulthood. Um, and I just think you know. Yeah, maybe it doesn't matter all that much unless you happen to fall within that age group. But there, there is something about the, the co- incoherence of these standards that I find a bit. So do you think? Annoying. So do you think if you if you uh, and I think I mean it does seem rather absurd to uh, raise age of above eighteen. Maybe that's maybe we should. But to me, it, instinctively, it seems rather absurd. But do, do you think we necessarily need like a fixed binary? Couldn't we have? Like there's this age for drinking, this age for driving, this age for uh, sex with a, with adults of any age, uh, this age for firearms. I mean, does it have to be like one specific age for all rights? Well, no, I guess it doesn't. <laughs> but if you're telling an adult, like, look, you're uh, you're able to drink, you, you're not able to drink, but you're able. I mean, I agree with the people who say it's ridiculous that you can't drink. You can't like go have a beer at a bar at eighteen, but you can purchase an AR fifteen. I mean, there seems just something intuitively off about that. Um, and you know, now to rectify that situation, apparently, what Biden wants to do is just raise the legal age to twenty one to be able to purchase an assault rifle. So we're again, we're just doing these this this piecemeal whittling away at the notion of full-fledged adulthood becoming available when you turn 18. And it's sort of arbitrary anyway, but, I mean, you have to make mm-hmm. a legal demarcation point. And that demarcation point is just coming less, uh, becoming less and less coherent as, as time goes on and when there are new political imperatives 
on the scene, such as wanting to limit the availability of assault weapons. I do think, I think we've been doing this for centuries, and I think, um, I think 99.9% of people would say, even people who, th- who think they, they don't like liberalism, like Richard, I think 99.999% of people would, would say it was a good thing. Now, now it just seems absurd to me to push it further, but I don't know. I guess we should, it seems intuitively absurd to me that we, 18 is not an adult, but, you know, to people 100 years ago, it would have seemed absurd that 16 isn't an adult, you know? And I mean, like we had like child labor, what we now call child labor, like people 15, 14, 16, men and women were working eight hours, nine hours, seven hours in the 19th century or even early 1900s in factories. Well, now they sit to seven hours, eight hours a day in school. I'm not, you know, you say, you, you know, nobody would defend that old stuff. I, I think I probably would defend uh, some of this stuff. I mean, I think child, what we call child labor, I don't necessarily think that a lot of people are getting a lot out of school and they would get something out of working. Uh, so I don't know. I wouldn't say that the sort of this raising adulthood has been uh, unquestionable success. I think people. Well, surely to... you disagree with, and, and I'm, I'm not trying to trap you in something I'm asking you. Um, surely you disagree with, like, when the United States was founded, the age of consent was typically no higher than 12. Surely you, you disagree with that conception. Was, was, there, was it the age of consent? Did they have the age of consent? It was still, it was marriage, right? It was the age of Yeah, it was, it was pre-marriage, right. It was, that was with marriage, but it was, right. it was, like, betrothal could be below 12, but 12 was in, like, the Catholic Church, for example. I mean, I when I was... <laughs> Yeah, Starting, that's, that's uh, too young. Right, that's, you know, yeah, and also, yeah. you know, okay, when, the, when the country you was... Know, when the country I was... want to make one quick point. Sorry. And then you guys can talk for, for two minutes. The, the people who raised the age of consent from 12 in the United States to 16, 17, 18 were feminists, primarily. So I'll just make that one defense of historical feminism. Go I ahead. was just going to say, you know, in, in, back at the founding of the country, lifespans were much shorter, as I'm sure everyone is aware. So the idea that you're going to delay legal adulthood to 18 probably made no sense because a lot of people only live for like another 20 years. Um, and obviously today, you know, with medical advances and everything else, longevity is much more available. Uh, so you have people, you know, living to their nineties yeah. and even a hundred. My, my grandpa is 101. So, so I guess, so I guess like I'm, I'm not even necessarily arguing as a policy proposal that we raise the legal age of adulthood to 21. I'm just saying that it would at least make a lot of these attempts to regulate what 18 year olds can do more like cognizable. Uh, if it were just this broad brush intervention to say, okay, like, look, you're not developed enough to do all these things at 18. So therefore, let's just make the legal age adulthood to 21. And they're going to live probably another 70 years anyway. But I, I don't feel that much. I don't feel that strongly about it. Again, it was just sort of a transient thought that occurred to me and I was listening to Biden. Yeah. I, I would just say like my one point, I'm not going to dwell on this because it, it was, I'm going off of a tangent based on a, a course I'm taking about like the history of sex and sexual norms and societies um, in my program. But, um, I think that a lot of li- a lot of people who are like, oh, I'm trad, I'm against liberalism, are actually like, <laughs> they're for liberalism just from an earlier era. And I make that accusation against all kinds of people who claim to be anti-liberal, and I make it now against you, Richard. Uh, 
what say you, Richard? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I'm pretty. I mean, I, I, I think we would like to define any kind of historical development as liberalism. That everyone is for some kind of liberalism. Sure, like nobody wants to go back to the norms of Hammurabi. Uh, or something. I mean, so like, yeah, I mean, that's obviously true. And so it's just, yeah, we all, we all debate and have different opinions about exactly what norms and practices should be. Yeah. All right. Well, on that bizarre note, let's wrap it up. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, thanks, Richard. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And uh, we'll do it again next Thursday. Bye bye. Yep.